In April of 1945, the dissident German pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was sentenced to death in a concentration camp deep in the Bavarian forest. Uh, he was one of, of a handful of prisoners who were going to be loaded onto a truck and then uh, executed for their part in the plot to overthrow Hitler. The drive from Berlin to the camp took a couple days, and along the way he became friends with a fellow prisoner, a Russian named Kokorin. And unlike Bonhoeffer, whom all the survivors describe as being unwaveringly hopeful in the face of death, Kokorin was deeply anxious, he was depressed, he was incredibly fearful. And so in order to pass the time, Bonhoeffer offered to uh, teach Kokorin some of the basics of theology. And in response, Kokorin would teach him some Russian. They arrived on a Saturday. And while they could hear the advancing gunfire of the Allied troops in the distance, it became clear that their time was running out, that help would not arrive in time to save them, and that this was going to be the last night of their lives. So the prisoners asked Bonhoeffer to lead them in a service of worship and of communion that next morning. But Bonhoeffer refused because as they'd been talking about it, he noticed that Kokorin was starting to withdraw. He was raised under the official atheism of the Soviet state, and he felt like it would be hypocritical for him to participate in a service of worship. And when Kokorin explained this, Bonhoeffer sat down next to him, put his arm around him, and smiled and said, then I will not receive communion either. Because if I leave you at the communion table, I might actually be leaving Jesus behind. See, he had spent his whole life writing and teaching and preaching about how in Jesus, God shares in our place. And to follow Jesus is to be a place sharer for others, to step into the other's pain and isolation, and in this way, bear one another's burdens. He believed that God was for his Russian friend, and so in obedience to Jesus, in the small amount of time that he was available, and in whatever small way he could do so, Bonhoeffer wanted to show his friend that he also was for him. He saw his friend's grief and fear and unbelief as this weight that was crushing him, and so in this act of theological improvisation, he offered to stand in his place and bear his burden so that in their last moments, his friend would not be alone. We're in a series called One Another, which is all about the kind of community that Jesus intends and what his disciples will start to naturally look like as they begin to love one another. And it looks like a community that will bear with one another, one that knows when and how to encourage one another, one that welcomes and accepts one another in a spirit of gentleness. And it will be a community that learns how to carry one another. With that, I want to invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, as Susie comes forward to read. And notice that this comes hot on the heels of Paul's description of what a community that walks in the Spirit looks like, one that embodies the fruit of the Spirit. Listen carefully, for this is God's Word. Galatians 6, 1 through 5. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. 
But watch yourselves, or you will also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else, for each one should carry their own load. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Seminary was part of the small group of guys that would get together every week and we would study the Bible and we would uh, check in on each other, pray for each other. We would compare, you know, kind of scar stories, either from stupid stuff that we had done or from girlfriends, you know, things like that. Uh, we spent a lot of time laughing, digging at each other. Uh, but the highlight of our week together every week was that we would confess to each other what it is that we needed to confess. Often it was heavy stuff that we never really told anyone else. And then we would look each other in the eye and we would assure each other that we were forgiven. And we'd pray for each other. And then we would break bread and we would pour out wine. We'd engage in some unsanctioned communion together. Week in, week out, Tuesday nights, we did not miss it. Uh, one night in October, uh, before we met at our usual time, a few of us gathered together to watch the Red Sox and probably come back from being down zero games to three to even up the series against the New York Yankees. And while I am a Dodgers fan uh, by reasons of birth and you know, for theological accuracy, <laughs> I married into a family of New Englanders, and so I, you know, spirits were kind of riding high for everybody, except for one of the groups, one of the guys in our group, he was unusually quiet that morning. He was usually one of the more gregarious guys, but he started to kind of be sullen and a little bit withdrawn. And when the weekly check-in came around to him, we asked what was going on, and he said, well, I got to start by telling you, I haven't been to church in weeks. I'm having a really hard time praying, reading my Bible. When I do, nothing. So we asked him, you know, what he thought was, was going on with him. And this inner dialogue just kind of spilled out of him. He said, look, I, I don't think I can do this anymore. I mean, all throughout college, all I wanted to do was become a pastor. My parents, my church, everyone's so proud of the fact that I'm here. But I don't even know if I believe this stuff anymore. Half of the time when we're sitting here in a group, I feel like I am a fraud. I'm here with you guys, and I don't know if I believe it. And I started talking this over with one of my mentors back home, and he kept telling me that all I need to do is have more faith. And I kept telling him, that's the one thing I can't do right now. I, I wish I could. And I could, just, I could just feel his disappointment as I was talking to him. And now he won't return my calls. Maybe I don't belong here. And that last phrase just kind of hung there in the silence. The, the weight of his shame had caused his body to kind of contort and shrink. He could not look anyone in the eyes. It's what it looks like when somebody is faltering, when they are un, under the weight of, of letting their, everyone they know down. And now some of his friends that he talked to began to treat his doubt like it was some sort of contagion. And you could tell that he was just waiting for another lecture from his seminary buddies. But after a while, one of the guys in our group spoke up and he said, you're not going anywhere, man. We are in this with you. You just come and you sit next to me in church on Sunday because you belong here just as much as I do. You come, I will believe for you. I will pray when you can't pray. I will confess when you cannot confess. That's what we're going to do, all right? 
See, my friend was making this promise to love him enough to carry the weight of his doubt and his shame until he could find his faith again. You, you might have noticed this strange tension in the passage that Susie read, uh, you know, that Paul writes to the Galatian church in verse 2, carry one another's burdens. But then he comes around in verse 5 and says, each one must carry your own load. So which one is it? Is it carry each other's burdens or is it each one carry their own load? Well, you got to know there's a difference in the language between what the words that Paul uses for a burden and a load. Uh, the Greek, uh, the word for burden, baros, refers to the, the kind of weight that would crush a person if they tried to carry it on their own. It's the, it's the kind of weight like shame. It has this, this moral dimension to it. It's the weight like a failure. Another way of saying this would be bear one another's faults. But a load, on the other hand, is something that is unique to the individual. It's something that nobody else can carry. Burdens are meant to be carried by a community. Loads are meant to be shouldered alone. There, there's this interplay where the community of Jesus needs to learn how to both be mutually supportive and individually responsible. Not one or the other, always both. Well, so you might be thinking, well, that's a noble gesture your friend made, you know, to, to believe when you can't believe, to pray when you can't pray, but clearly faith is a load. It's the kind of thing you can't, you know, you have to carry alone. You can't believe for somebody else. Well, maybe, but you can share in their place. You can take some of the weight and some of the burden that they're carrying. You see, there's this great story that we read way back in Mark chapter 2, like two and a half years ago, or whenever that was, uh, of this paralyzed man who's brought by his friends to Jesus. They literally carry him there on a mat. And Jesus is speaking to this large group in a household. His friends, the, the guy's friends, they, they, they can't get in to see Jesus. There's too many people there. They can't go through the front door. But their resolve is steeled, and they haul him up onto the roof. They tear a hole open into the roof, and then they lower him down. And the whole story turns on this phrase, when Jesus saw their faith. And the gospel writers, they're not talking about the faith of the paralyzed man. They are talking about the faith of the friends. Their faith is what brought about his healing. It, it led to his salvation. He had a community that not only carried his body, but with their faith, through their faith, they won for their friend a faith of his own. And then Jesus tells him to do what? He tells him to stand up, carry your own mat out with you. Ultimately, this guy does have to stand on his own, but he could not have gotten there if he didn't have friends to do it for him, what he could not do for himself. And so often when we use this phrase, carry one another's burdens, we, we are talking about helping each other out in a time of hardship. And, and while it certainly is that, what Paul is describing here is a situation in which somebody has slipped up, let a whole bunch of people down. This is a person who's let their own fragility, their foolishness, their brokenness, their, their stupidity, their selfishness, whatever it is, it has affected an entire community. So the people find themselves having to bear the weight of a problem they did absolutely nothing to create. Such an isolating moment when you realize that you are the one who has made life difficult, not just for yourself, but for everyone around you. 
I was talking at the break uh, with Andrea and Thomas. Graham was on a baseball team. Uh, and last weekend while he was here at church, the uh, team was playing in an elimination tournament. Uh, he was thinking, you know, great, we're going to win the first game. We'll, I'll get to go play the second game. Just before the service started, they were heading into the last inning up seven runs to two. So things were looking good. By the time we checked the score at the break, the team had lost eight to seven. Turns out three of the other team's winning runs were scored by three errors made by one kid who felt absolutely awful. And I would love to say that this group embodied what we're talking about in the passage here. <laughs> they, they rallied around him, they picked him up and said, hey, we win as a team, we lose as a team. Get back in there. That is not what happened. The team's group chat afterward, there was a lot of blame shifting. There was a lot of distancing. There was a lot of finger pointing. That seems to be what happened in Galatia. Paul's writing to this new community of Jesus followers that had just received the gospel and they were beginning to allow it to shape their lives and their practices. But like with anything, there was this massive J curve at the beginning of their practice. They were hitting the dip, drifting back into a kind of life that paid more attention to the differences in the community than in their common need for the grace of Jesus. And so these little divisions were starting to crop up. People began to see themselves as a particular type of Christian, usually along ethnic or economic lines, as if one group was better than the other. And if one group saw one of the other ones behaving in a way that was out of step, they would say to themselves, well, that's not how we do things over here, holding themselves up in this posture of superiority. And in that, I think Paul's letter has something to say in our cultural moments. You see, there's this growing tendency both in the wider society and in the church to treat those whose failure becomes public as though they are radioactive. We blame, we isolate. We become worried about what people will think about us if we are associated with them. Now, it's hard enough to own your own responsibility when you feel crushed and humiliated but it takes a person of some real depth to say, look, I did not cause this situation, but I'm going to carry it like I did. I I'm going to stand in the place and, and bear the burden of our friend who dragged us into this mess. I am going to take the lead in helping us to see what we can all do to make things better. Now, these things get compounded importance when there is an ethical and a moral dimension attached to it. You see, in this call and this, 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 this command to bear one another's burdens, it usually comes in the middle of the night. In other words, it comes at the time when we least expect it. It does not come when we have a convenient opening in our calendar. Bearing burdens always involves placing my life so close to another's life that their reality becomes my own, that their storm becomes my storm. It's to share in their place, to stand in the gap and shoulder it alongside them so the weight does not crush them. And when we do this, Paul says, we fulfill the law of Christ, which is the law of love, to be fully present with another so they understand that they are not in this thing alone. So what do you do when somebody has slipped up, when somebody has humiliated themselves and damaged possibly the reputation of 
the community that you are a part of or the family that you belong to? What do you do when a person has caused great pain and is in great pain and unable to find their own way out of it? Do you avoid them? Do you pity them? Do you blame them? Do you disavow the friendship and create distance between you, leaving them to clean up their own mess? I know a lot of people, far too many, for whom that has been their past experience of church. They have a burden. They've made a mistake. And they've come to what is supposed to be a community of grace, only to find it more judgmental than society at large. And maybe that's been your experience. Or did you find in it a place that will seek you out, offer mercy, show forgiveness, share in your place, inconvenience itself to bear that burden with you, even at the cost of enduring some of the scorn and judgment that you were facing, all so they could walk you back on the path to restoration. I ask that because there's a lot of stuff hanging on the balance One of those options relieves the burden and brings us to a place of restoration. The other one puts us in the place where we believe that grace cannot reach us. And Paul is saying if this community of Jesus is going to be marked by grace, we're going to need to learn how to take responsibility for each other. Specifically, it is the work of the whole community to come alongside one who is crushed by the weight of their own failure and bring them back to a place where they can stand on their own. Because we all have a place where it feels like grace can't break into our lives, right? Those places where, at least in our imagination, we stand apart from the community and out of God's reach even. And there is a word for that. Shame. Shame is a complicated feeling. It's easy to experience, kind of hard to define, because shame is a storyteller. It's an insecurity that wraps its claws around our sense of self, our sense of identity. It crafts those moments that we never stop living in response to, those moments that we never stop trying to protect ourselves from getting into again, and it forms that person that we never stop trying to prove that we are not. And it's different from guilt, and that guilt tells me when I've done something wrong, but shame is, no, there is something wrong with me. We've all got something, some way that shame has dug its talons into our hearts. And the problem in an individualistic culture like ours is that we don't let others in to carry the burden. Instead, we try to make our way through life loaded down with the weights, and it looks like fear in some of us, that inescapable itch of insecurity that never lets me let my guard down, that never lets me be fully known for who I am. And it shows up as loudly as self-doubt that never lets me feel at ease in others. And in some, it shows up as seductively as this kind of naked ambition to always do more, accomplish more against an invisible standard that is always moving with every accomplishment. And then there's resentment that inner angry fight that never stops and it manifests itself in full-on rage in some and a quiet judgmentalism in others that is never satisfied what is it for you what is that place where the burden you're carrying is too great to bear Or have you gotten so good at hiding it that you position yourself as the strong one whose job it is to come alongside and carry others, not the one who needs carrying? 
And that may very well be the greater danger. That's why Paul warns in verse 3, if anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. Friends, we're, we're all carrying one burden or another. It's easy to step into another situation with a smug sense of superiority as if to say, I would never get myself in a situation like this. But that's not the way of Jesus. 14th century mystic Thomas Akempis catches echoes of St. Paul when he writes this. The wisest form of self-understanding is to think little of ourselves and to think kindly and well of others. If you see someone doing evil or carrying out a wrong act, do not for that reason think you are better than they. For you cannot tell how long you will remain in a state of grace. We are all frail. Remember that no one is frailer than you. This kind of self-deception that sees another fall and runs this inner narrative that that could never be me. Well, according to St. Paul, that's just a deadlier way of hiding. It's taking that part of your life and elevating it and, and expecting it then to carry all of the weight of your identity, of your significance. And whether that is your, your, your ter yeah, career trajectory or your, your moral standing or your reputation or your family or, or whatever it is, and then you elevate that and you, you magnify your entire life through the lens of that thing so that you can hold yourself at a distance and keep others from seeing in and possibly bearing the weight. But all that is just a way of trying to meet your own needs with your own resources, and it never, ever works. At best, we can mask the symptoms for a little while, but then it just spills out in some way. More rage, more fear, more loneliness, more shame. And we never really grow out of this. We just get better at hiding it. See, shame is a burden you cannot bear alone. You were not made to. You need a community to come alongside and carry you to the one who can bear it. And the reason that we come alongside each other to stand in each other's place is ultimately to bring about restoration. Paul writes in verse 1, restore the person gently. And this word for restored is, is one that describes a surgeon cutting out a tumor or, or a doctor putting a broken bone back into place. And if you've ever broken a bone, you know you want it done gently. Grace is at its best when strength and tenderness go hand in hand. There is pain involved in restoring someone. There is a recognition that things are not the way that they are supposed to be. Paul says elsewhere that we are to speak truth in love to one another. Because truth without love kills, but love without truth just lies. So the kind of carrying one of those burdens that leads to restoration requires the wisdom to know when to confront and the grace to do so in a way that does not overpower. So the question for us this morning is, do you love enough to inconvenience yourself to stand in another's place? and carry them until they can stand on their feet? Do you have enough humility 
to allow others into your life to carry you in the places you are broken? Or are we so concerned about what other people think about us that we avoid and talk ourselves out of the call to carry one another? Because friends, there's brokenness all around us. And the grace that Paul wants us to see is that when we carry another, we do not have to have all of the answers. We do not need to be burdened even by the outcomes. We only need to be willing to risk loving each other faithfully. After all, I doubt very much that Bonhoeffer knew how things would turn out on that April evening in 1945 as he was awaiting his own execution. But something about a friend's willingness to embrace anxiety and stare into his fear without hesitation must have made an impression on that Russian soldier because one of the prisoners who survived tells us that Kokorin asked Bonhoeffer to reconsider and proceed with the worship service and he himself would participate. And there was no script to follow when on that October night in 2004, a band of brothers rallied around a friend who was struggling and offered to carry him for a time. But our friend not only hung with us, he was able to find the joy of his faith and embrace his calling once more. Friends, ultimately, the burden of your shame and your sin, it is too great to shoulder alone. And in the cross, Jesus shared in our place, taking on the weight that would crush us if it were just us. Because he carries that weight on your behalf and on mine, we are free to carry one another. Let us pray. Almighty God, you are the one who carries the weight of the world. And we who are trying to follow you do so in a culture that is constantly telling us that we have to do it on our own that dependence is the absolute worst thing. But we were made to need each other. We were made to carry one another. And so, God, we ask that you would give us the humility not to hold ourselves up as better than others and the wisdom to know when we cannot stand alone. Give us also the vision to see others that we may know how to carry their burdens when they are struggling and stumbling under the weight. Give us the courage, give us the conviction to come alongside them and stand with them so that they can stand on their own. We ask this, Jesus, because we want to confess our relationships within you. We want to follow you. We want to practice your way. And so this we pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.